Today's reading is from Acts 7, 51 through 60. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So a few years back, I was uh, playing basketball with a bunch of guys from Cole and from the community at our campus over in Meridian, Cole Valley campus, and went up for a rebound, you know, almost touched the rim, of course not, but <laughs> came down and landed awkwardly, and I immediately felt incredible pain in my knee. Quickly, I had swelling, and as I walked, I felt a certain amount of instability. But in my wisdom, I thought, it'll get better. Four months later, I still had pain, swelling, and instability in my knee and decided, you know, maybe I should go to a doctor. He said, well, you've severed your ACL, you have meniscus damage, you definitely need surgery. <laughs> well, I did learn something from that because then a couple of years ago when I again severed my ACL in the other knee, I went to the doctor much more quickly because I had learned a little bit at least <laughs> so I could deal with it. <clears throat> you see, there are physical symptoms, physical danger signs that we shouldn't ignore, right? There's all kinds of those. It might be high blood pressure. It might be chest pains. It might be all kinds of physical symptoms that you should not ignore. You should go get help. You should not be maybe like a friend of mine from our men's group this last fall who had chest pains for a good month at least, but he just thought it would get better and died of a massive heart attack. So, if you ignore the danger signs physically, you threaten your life. But there are also spiritual danger signs that we should not ignore or it threatens our spiritual life as well. We can be in terrible danger spiritually if we overlook these. And it's important to understand, I think, that we're never static in our Christian walk. You're either drifting away from God or you're moving closer to him to know him and love him more. And if you feel like you're static, then I'm sorry to say you're actually drifting. 
So we want to make sure that we look for those signs that tell us, oh, oh, I'm drifting away from God. We need to recognize those signs. So today we will look at three danger signs from our passage in the speech of Stephen that we should all be vigilant about to make sure we aren't drifting away from God into dangerous waters. Pray with me. Lord, as we come together to look at this text, Lord, may you, by the power of your spirit, convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. Show us where we are adrift in our spiritual walk and help us recognize what's going on in our own hearts. Reveal to us, Lord, what we need to repent of, turn away from so that we can be moving towards you and learning to live in the reality of your grace and your love more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're back in our series in Acts. We had a wonderful Advent season, but we're back in our series on Acts, which is entitled The Spirit-Empowered Church. We're learning to be the church that Jesus designed us to be, to live in his power. And in the book of Acts, we see it lived out as they learn and grow together as a community. In the book of Acts, God is working. Jesus is working. In fact, the book of Acts is often called the Acts of the Apostles. But to remind you, we want to call it the Acts of Jesus. Because Luke says at the beginning, in the introduction, he says, Well, formerly I wrote to you, O Theopolis, about what Jesus began to do and teach. And so the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. It's really about him how he's working through the Holy Spirit and through the people of God to build the kingdom of God. A month ago, Rod taught on the end of chapter 6 and the end of chapter 7, the arrest of Stephen and then the execution of Stephen, which Ray just read that part to you again to remind you of it. But today we're focusing on the in-between part, which is the actual speech of Stephen that got him stoned. (laughs) We're looking at the rest of chapter 7. And this happens to be the longest speech in the book of Acts. So I suspect God has some things here he really wants us to hear. He wants us to pay close attention. The speech begins with Stephen being questioned and ends with Stephen condemning the religious leaders. And as he challenges their misguided faith, the faith of the religious leaders, the Israel leaders, Jewish leaders. He also shows us today where we can easily get off track, where we can begin to drift away from the Lord. So he does that by recounting the history of Israel and how they drifted from God over the centuries. And he does that by focusing on three people primarily in Israel's history, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. In the end of chapter 6, again, to remind you of the context, verse 13, when they're questioning him, they've arrested him. It says, they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place in the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place, the temple, um, and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. You see, the center of Jewish religion at the time was the temple. 
And of course, the law that Moses had given as well. And along with that, though they don't mention it here, being in the land. We're in the promised land. We have the temple. God's given us the law, so we're okay. All the religions centered on that. It wasn't so much centered on how well they knew Yahweh, how much they trusted Him and loved Him and obeyed Him, but it was making sure those things gave them their identity, their security in life. And I believe that's why God, 40 years later, had the temple destroyed and why He has never allowed the Jews to rebuild it. Because our tendency is to trust in the temple rather than in God Himself. And that's the challenge, right? We, we find other things to trust in, and we'll be talking more about that as we go on this morning. But God does not want us to put our faith in anything other than Jesus Himself. He wants us to stand firmly on who He is, not in a building, not in a nation, or anything else. So, He begins in chapter 7 by talking about at the beginning, starting in verse one, he begins a speech by talking about Abraham. And let me just set the context by reading the first few verses. The high priest said, are these things so? What he's been accused of. And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. You got to think that that had to be a little scary. Leave everything familiar to you, everything that you've known, and come to a place that you know nothing about, but I'll show it to you. (laughs) Then what did he do? He left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country, this country, Israel, he's speaking to the Jews, in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child and he was approaching a 100 years old, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. You see, Abraham is given by Stephen as the example of what God's looking for for us. Abraham was one who trusted God despite not having much clear evidence of that at all. He put his weight on God and said, "Okay, God, if you're not real, I'm in trouble. (laughs) And he followed him and obeyed him and trusted him. You see, he was our example of a true person of faith. That's the kind of faith that God wants, where our hearts are given over fully to trust him. But then Stephen goes on to show how the history of Israel reveals that Israel was not good at following Abraham's example. They did not trust God well. And that's where we see these three danger signs where they got off track. So let's look at these together. What's the first danger sign that we see that Stephen points to that Israel fell into? It's jealousy. Jealousy. Let me read verses 9 and 10 as he's talking now about Joseph. The patriarchs, that is Joseph's ten brothers at this point. Benjamin hadn't been born yet. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Remember, Joseph was Jacob's, his father's favored son, gave him a coat of many colors. He had these dreams where his brothers were bowing down to him and they didn't like it. 
They were jealous. They were upset. And so it says they sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Stephen's point is that Joseph was God's chosen man, but his brothers, the people of Israel at the time, rejected it because of their jealousy. Jealousy is something I think that's a danger sign that we easily fall into as believers, isn't it? We become jealous when two things happen. Number one, when we're discontent, discontent with what God has given us. We feel somehow deep down that God's not treating me fairly. He's not giving me what I deserve. I deserve better. And so this discontentment begins to feed on our souls. And then the secondly, we become jealous when we then compare ourselves to other people. We're discontent and now we're comparing ourselves to other people and we begin to think, how come, how come they have healthy kids and we struggle so much? How come they have good health and I always have to go to the doctor? I wish, I wish I had their job. I wish I had their car. (laughs) I wish I had their house. I wish I had their family. I wish I had her husband. I wish I had his wife. I wish I had their health. I wish I had their personality. I wish I had their money. I wish I had their lawn. I wish I had their hair. (laughs) I get that one a lot, of course. (laughs) I wish I had their hairstylist. I can help you with that if you need to know who mine is. But You see, jealousy divides us from other people because we compare and, and we want what they have and it begins to eat on our souls. And it also divides us ultimately from God because we're discontent with what he's given us and we don't like it. (laughs) And when that happens, if you see in yourself jealousy, that sense of comparing yourself and discontentment with your life as it is, understand you're on dangerous ground. Whenever we fall into that and, and don't we all at times? Let's let's be honest here. We do. All of these danger signs are part of us at times. But when we see them, we need to realize this is not good. It's it's causing me to drift away from God when I hang on to this jealousy, when I hang on to this discontentment. And it begins to cause me to drift into dangerous territory. So what's the remedy? How do we deal with jealousy? What's the right way to deal with it? Well, a simple word, contentment. But it's not so simple to live out, is it? <laughs> it's it's begins, I think, at least for me. What helps me be content is when I just put myself in perspective in the universe <laughs> and I realize, you know what? What do I really deserve? What I deserve is hell. I've rebelled against him. I deserve hell. The only reason I'm not in hell is because of his grace through Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, 
it, it takes away the discontentment because it means that everything I have is a gift from him. Everything. And so thank you, Lord, for what I have. When I'm thinking properly, I think that's the right way to think. Learning to be content. Have you learned the secret of contentment? Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, as he describes how he had to learn the secret of contentment. I think it's something we all have to learn if we're going to live a contented life. He says this in Philippians 4.11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret of contentment has to do with having your eyes on Jesus and realize that he gives you everything you need for your life. And so whether you have a lot or a little, like Paul says, you say, it's okay. I do not need More, I have all I need, and I'm trusting in a loving Heavenly Father to give me what I need. As it's been well said, contentment is not having what you want. Contentment is wanting what you have. Or as the philosopher Socrates put it quite well, I think, he who is not content with what he has would not be content with what he would like to have. You see, contentment is something that carries you through whatever circumstances, no matter how much you have. But again, if if you haven't learned that secret, then you will never be content no matter what you have. It's like, uh, I think it was Rockefeller, one of the richest men in the world. It's been attributed to, maybe it was someone else. But as he said, what uh, when he was asked, what does it take? How much does it take to make a person happy? And his answer, a little bit more. In other words, it's never enough if you haven't learned the secret of contentment. So it's a challenge to us, isn't it, to look at our hearts and say, wow, am I living in jealousy and discontentment? If so, I need to learn that secret. Lord, teach me that secret of contentment so I can rest in you and not drift away from you, but trust you with my life. If you see jealousy and discontentment in your life, watch out, Stephen suggests. The second danger sign he talks about then is denial. Let me explain that. Denial. (laughs) Uh, Let me read verse 23 and following first. Now, Stephen, as he's recounting the history of Israel, he talks about a period uh, with Moses. And he says, but when he, Moses, was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Man, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You don't mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And then down in verse 35, as Stephen describes their attitude, he says, This Moses, whom they disowned, 
saying, who made you a ruler and judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. There's a word there, verse 35. This Moses whom they disowned is my translation, but I think a better translation is the word denied, who they denied, denial. To deny something is to close your eyes and turn away. To say, I I just don't want to look at that too closely because I'm scared of what it might mean. (laughs) I don't want to see what's there because often we deny, I think, when we are afraid of what it might mean if we really understood what God was telling us. You see, for Israel, they were in They were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. Their life was terrible. They were having to make bricks without straw. It was difficult, but it was what they knew. They had made life work. And in that situation, sometimes it's really hard to look at change and to really think, is Moses really going to deliver us? Can we really be free? And so they denied him as being God's chosen instrument. God had to do amazing things to get their attention. Ten plagues, etc., etc. But there was something just familiar about Egypt to them. And they didn't want to believe that God would really work through Moses. So they shut their eyes to the Redeemer right in front of their eyes. You see, this is a danger sign. Let, let me explain it a little more. What does it mean when we deny well, we deny God when we when we see God telling us something, pointing out something in our lives he wants us to deal with or either through his word or through his spirit or through other people. And we choose to ignore it. Like uh, I was talking to a man recently and he was telling me that he's really trying to get his act together. He's really trying to follow the Lord. He's made some bad choices. And uh, right now, though, he's living with a woman and has been for a year. He knows it's unhealthy, it's a really bad relationship, and he knows he needs to get out of it. But as we talked, he said, yeah, I know that's what God's telling me, but it's, it's so hard. And, and then, you, like him, we, we begin to rationalize. You know, I just don't want to hurt her. I know breaking up will be really hard on her. Yeah, did you realize getting together and doing what you've been doing has done more harm. But, you know, he he rationalizes why he just can't follow through with it. I think for us sometimes, maybe on a lesser scale, but we do the same thing. We we see a needy person in front of us or God. God prompts you in your spirit that, man, you should call this person because, you know, they're hurting. They're shut in or God lays someone in need on your heart and, and you go, yeah, but. But, you know, I've got a lot to do today. Or I don't want to be late for work or, you know, whatever. Maybe God's laid on you a a sense that you should get involved in this particular ministry or give money towards this particular thing or go on a short-term missions trip or whatever it might be. God prompts you in your heart and yet we find or prompts me in my heart and, and I find it's easy to rationalize it away. We can always find lots of reasons why we shouldn't give that money to that cause. You know, well, I'm going to need it for this and that. And, or, or I shouldn't visit that sick person because I don't want to be a bother to them. And I know they don't have a lot of energy. And, uh, or I should help my spouse 
Right now, I know they're under a lot of pressure and they kind of need my help, but, you know, I've had a hard day. And I really need some time to let down. And I need... See, God prompts us all the time. Do you realize God's speaking to you all the time? He's created good works for us to walk in and they're always right before us. And He's prompting us through His Word or His Spirit. But when we say, no, you know... There's a reason why I can't do that. That is denial. That is turning our backs away, our faces away from what God is calling us to do. And that's on being on dangerous ground when we continually rationalize why we can't do what God's telling us. What happens is our hearts get harder and harder over time as we continue to say no to the promptings of the Spirit in us. So what's the remedy to this danger sign? Well, I think the remedy is simple but not easy, and that's obedience. The remedy is simply obedience. Now you may say, what? Are you a legalist? Obedience? Come on, we live in grace. Well, you know what? I'm not a legalist, but Jesus says very clearly, if you love me, you will what? Obey me. You will. That's It's simply a response of the heart to what Jesus has done for us is that we will want to obey him in every little thing that comes our way rather than finding a way to not obey. So the way we overcome denial is when we see something from God, the little things of life, we obey. We just decide to do it. Obey in the little things. Don't compromise. Don't rationalize. Sometimes the most godly thing to do is simply get off the couch and wash some dishes. (laughs) Or call that friend who you know is going through a rough time. I don't know how many times I've had this prompting in my heart and about someone, somebody comes to mind and sometimes I neglect to follow through, but it's amazing when I do follow through how much it's just the right time they needed to hear from me right then at that point. Jesus is prompting us all the time in little ways. And so how do we deal with denial? We we obey. We commit to obey no matter what. Um, commit to help your spouse. You commit to talk to you, make that difficult decision to talk to your son or your daughter who's going through a tough time, or to talk to your roommate about something you see going on in their lives. Yeah, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We don't know the perfect thing. We we don't know how to make this all come out right. But if we have a heart of obedience, then Jesus gives us what we need at that point. What's interesting is that Jesus himself had to learn obedience through the things he suffered. Jesus God himself, walking around on earth, had to learn obedience. Hebrews 5.8 says this, Although he was a son, he was God himself, he was the Messiah, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And therefore, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. As he learned to be obedient, So now as we learn to be obedient, we experience life, eternal life, the fullness of his life. So if Jesus had to learn obedience, it's something we have to learn, too. We're not very good at it. 
But as we obey in the little things, okay, I'm going to commit to you, I'll do it in your promptings, then God begins to move us towards him and take and deal with this danger area of denial. The third danger sign that Stephen points to is idolatry. Idolatry. Let me read verse 39 and following, where again, Moses is with the Israelites in the wilderness now. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. And he says this. Stephen says, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, to Moses, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? O house of Israel. You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramphi, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. So, you know, they're in they're in the wilderness and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he's up there for 40 days getting the law and the Israelites get impatient and they think, you know. I'm I don't know about this Moses guy but we need something to worship here. So let's create something with our own hands. And they created a golden calf. And then interesting how it says, oh, and they kind of pulled out everything they brought from Egypt that they'd hidden all these idols. Why'd they have all those? Well, you know, you need to kind of, uh, you're not sure God's going to really come through for you, right? So you got to keep something just to trust in other than him. I mean, doesn't it sound like all of us? <laughs> Idolatry is, as verse 41 says, rejoicing in the work of your hands, your own hands, where where we kind of craft life so we can find security just in case God doesn't come through for us. Where we can trust in something and look at something that catches our eye. We may go through the motions of trusting God like the Israelites did, but, you know, let's keep these idols hidden away just in case we need them. I'm guessing you don't have a golden calf in your home or idols on your mantle that you bow down to. Or do you? Or do I? Maybe our idols are, you know, our investment portfolio or our bank account or our new car or fancy house or... Ah, you know, we have all kinds of things we trust in rather than God. We all have idols. I know I do. Maybe it's your Bible knowledge, and that's what you trust in. Maybe it's the fact you live in the USA, and this is God's country, and therefore I'm okay, just like Israel trusted in being in the land and trusted in the temple. And and the fact is we're we're all naturally idolaters, and we have to learn to really trust Jesus with our whole hearts. I've seen how my own security and trust is too often in my financial situation or in how well people encourage me or, you know, all kinds of things. One, one really good definition, I think, of idolatry is this. It's anything 
An idol is anything that captures our hearts and steals our affections from God. We're we're meant to live with our affections centered on Him where He is our life, our joy, our hope. But idolatry is where we begin to hang on to other things that get in the way of really trusting Him with our life. So Stephen in his speech talks about that idolatry and then verse 47, he makes a shift and he's talking about the temple and how the temple is something that um, God really doesn't dwell there. It's like, Stephen, why are you saying that? What's the point? Why do you start talking about the temple? And then suddenly it clicked for me. He's talking about the temple because the temple was their primary idol. Their religious ceremony, their religious world, their activity for God was their biggest idol that they trusted in. As it often is for us, you know, I think too often my idols are centered around, you know, I have my regular quiet time and I have the right theology and I'm against abortion and things out there and we can we can fall into grabbing onto things as idols that we do, the work of our hands rather than trusting him. One way to tell what an idol is, is if you get anxious about losing it or if it gets taken away. Your world seems to be falling apart. That's a pretty good indication. That's an idol for you. So what's the remedy for idolatry? How do we change our hearts? How do we how do we deal with idolatry? Well, trust. I mean, real trust, faith. It's it's putting our weight on Jesus and on Jesus alone rather than in other things. But to do that, it means repenting of our idols. And that's why it's so important that we are aware and open our eyes and ask God, God, what am I trusting in other than you? So we can turn away from those. And there may be things that God would tell you in your home to get rid of. Because you're trusting in them rather than in him. He may ask you to give away a lot of stuff or money or whatever because they've become your security rather than him. You see, one one way to tell if we're really trusting God and believe me, I, I don't exempt myself. This is a struggle for me, but I'm really convicted by this. One way to tell if you're really trusting God is. If you have this sense that unless God comes through, unless God is real and unless he comes through, my whole world will fall apart. Are you and I trusting God to that level? Or if we suddenly found out it was all a lie, God isn't real, would our lives just be fine because we've built all these systems around us to we pulled out our idols that we protected all this time and and kept with us just in case God doesn't come through? Boy, I don't know. That convicts me. Unless God is real and unless he comes through, my whole world will fall apart. And again, who's the example of that in this passage? Abraham. Abraham left everything, gave up everything. And I, I don't know what God might prompt you to do or what he might be speaking to you about, but I do know that he wants us to grow in our trust of him. So Stephen's conclusion, Ray read it, you know, but he just clarifies really clearly, you men who are stiff-necked, verse 51, 
and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. For the last thousands of years, Israel, you're always doing just as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. For some reason, that really upset the Sanhedrin. I don't know why. (laughs) And they put him to death. See, the challenge for us is this. If we let ourselves be like Israel, you know, we, we just give in and hang on to jealousy and discontentment. If we continue to walk a lifestyle of denial. Yeah, I know, God, you want me to do that, but I have all these reasons why I can't obey you. And we continue to hold on to our idols, you know, make sure we keep them there just in case God doesn't come through. We will find ourselves drifting further and further from God himself. And someday we'll wake up and go, how in the world did I get here? So the challenge for us is to say, OK, God, what what are you telling me? What do you want me to deal with here? What is it in my heart that you want to begin to change so I come near to you? So we ask ourselves, I ask myself, am I like Israel drifting away to where I become more and more stiff necked and hardened? Or am I like Abraham? willing to begin to learn to cast myself on God and his incredible love for me and all that he's done so that he becomes truly what I'm standing on, that he becomes what I trust in. So what I'd like to do right now is just take a couple of minutes and have some silent prayer. This is a convicting passage, right? And I I want you to just take this to the Lord and say, Lord, what is it you want me to take from this? What is it that you're speaking to my own heart about that maybe I need to deal with? Jealousy, discontentment, denial of you, idolatry, things I'm holding on to. And and let God speak to your heart for a couple of minutes and then I'll close. Well, Lord, when we... When we just get a glimpse of what's in our hearts, we have to confess that we're a mess. And if life depended on us getting it right, we would have to admit that there's no way. But thank you that you've given us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Our sins are covered by the cross. But Lord, we we don't want to just live in that forgiveness. We want to live it out. And we want to draw close to you and know you as our very life. We want to trust you more. So, Lord, may we learn more and more to be people who have learned obedience, to walk in your steps, to put our weight on you so that your life might be visible in us to a world that desperately needs to see that you are real in our lives and in the world around them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.